Thank you for tuning in to Broken Boxes. I'm Ginger Donnell, creator and host of the podcast. Now, before I broadcast the wonderful conversation I recently had with artist Kate DeCicio, I wanted to take a moment to thank Chinupahanska Luger for stepping up over the past year to host the podcast while I worked on other projects. Chinupa has been a part of this work since its inception about eight years ago, acting as an interviewee mostly, but always present in some way. So as the work of Broken Boxes grows older, I'm excited to announce Chinupa will remain a recurring host on the project and support to share even more conversations with our peers who are creating new ways to see our world through art, organizing, and advocacy. And for those who may be just finding this work, I want to inform you that Broken Boxes is an artist-run, independent broadcasting platform amplifying narratives of intersection, solidarity, contradiction, and inspiration in the arts. We work with the concept that complexity is resilience and nurture the points where we stand in accompliship for one another as creatives. This long format interview podcast shares reflections of inspiration and vulnerability from members of our extended community who primarily identify as artist, activist, advocate, and accomplice while acknowledging the many overlapping variations of these practiced values. To learn more about Broken Boxes, our intentions, and who we are as people, you can visit our website at www.brokenboxespodcast.com and you can also subscribe to Broken Boxes Podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen to our extensive archive of over 100 episodes with new conversations dropping monthly. Now to introduce this episode with Kate DeCicio, I'd like to share a bit from her bio for you all. Kate is an Oakland-based artist, educator, and creative strategist. Her work centers portraiture for counter-narrative, community storytelling, and cultural strategy on behalf of abolition and collective liberation. Kate is from central Massachusetts, where she grew up on occupied Nipmuc territory on her family's fourth-generation farm. She is the third generation of her Polish and Italian ancestors and descends from 11 generations of English colonizers. Before working as an artist full-time, DeCicio was a mental health and substance abuse counselor and taught at the San Quentin Prison, St. Elizabeth's Forensic Psychiatric Hospital, and Leadership High School. The intersections of creativity, mental illness, addiction, and ancestral investigation have been driving themes in her art practice since she was a teenager. Kate is committed to repairing the harm of her inherited legacy and working to heal our collective imagination by learning how to stand squarely in truth, accountability, renewed resilience, and unknown possibility. She is currently working on a body of work called Anatomy of the Colonial Fetish and Cynical Pilgrim. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Kate DeCicio. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for being on Broken Boxes, Kate. I'm really excited to kind of 
dive into a conversation and get to know more about you. I met you just in transparency through Chinupa, through Chip Thomas, and through the work you all were doing together over the past um, couple years during the pandemic as a cohort. And I just kind of fell in love with your work. And as I got to know more about you, I realized that a lot of the visual language that I'd seen in spaces of activation were created by you. And so it just kind of like, it was this rabbit hole that I went down just learning about your practice and how much you've given to the movements of our time through creativity. And so I just wanted to say how amazing it's been to get to know you and your practice. And thanks for being here. And if you'd like to introduce yourself and maybe how, how you like to talk about yourself in the world, we can, we can dive in. Wow, Ginger. Well, first, I just want to say um, thank you for saying all of that. Like, I kind of got goosebumps head to toe, like, oh, my goodness, this person who I really respect is, you know, appreciating my contributions in the world. And I also just want to say, you know, Broken Boxes really has a good thing going on. And it's not a space for, you know, like white ladies to come in and chat uh and and that's part of you know, i think what makes it really special and so you know it's not lost on me um what it means to have been like invited and that you know for whatever reason there seemed like there was value for us to chat so thank you um well, my name is kate decisio and i'm an artist a cultural strategist a prison abolitionist and educator and in my work, I really think about collaboration as an opportunity to practice new ways of, of being with one another and thinking about how portraiture can play a role in counter narrative and how to use art in the space of abolition to really Think about how we can heal our collective imagination, as well as explore ways in which whiteness and colonization and the prison industrial complex have really wounded our collective imaginations. And like, what does it look like to heal? What becomes possible when white people get well? And how does that translate into our capacity to be with each other, stand in nature, and also show up with a kind of accountability that we haven't seen before. Well, what's coming up for me that I thought maybe we could tease apart for a second is the term abolition. Mm -hmm. And abolition is abolitionism, abolitionist. Like, what does that mean to you, especially as a white artist who works in spaces that uplift like um, underrepresented communities? Right. And uh, yeah, let's just break that apart because I'm always curious. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when I in the last couple months, I feel like, oh, I really want to be really clear around like how I position myself in within prison abolition, because I see other movements uh, using the word abolition in spaces that I am certainly not part of. But um, uh, I am very much a prison abolitionist and I when I think about the word abolition and see myself in this work, there's two parts of this, right? So there's like 
Yeah, there's like the really straightforward part where we talk about abolishing the police and we talk about abolishing prisons. And certainly that part of this is about taking apart something that's not working for us, right? But largely abolitionists are a community of people who for a very, very long time in the legacy of this land have worked from a space of creativity, asking ourselves kind of like, when the systems that are in place don't serve us, not only what does it look like for us to deconstruct the systems that aren't serving us, but what does it look like for us to, among ourselves, to use our creativity to build things that do? Um, So a lot of the times I kind of think about abolition as a space for not only for us to like destroy the systems that don't serve us and are causing harm, but what does it look like for us to transcend them through ways of being with one another, through ways of showing up in relationship, through creative means that really do nourish us collectively and through, you know, collaborative processes and building that center the values that we identify as important to us, you know, things like sustainability and reciprocity and accountability um, and joy, fun. So that that is how I think about abolition, try to embody abolition um, and try to weave the ethos of abolition through my work. Yeah. So it doesn't feel, I mean, when I think about abolition, I think of it as destructive, but it doesn't feel that way at all. No, 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 no. For me, and I would say, you know, the the thought leaders and, you know, interrupting criminalization and Miriam Kaba, you know, the work of critical resistance and Angela Davis, this kind of like community led abolition is really about building. It's really about, you know, community creatively thinking about how because, you know, one of the things that I always talk about when we talk about like prison and police is like, it's kind of the least creative option, right? The baseline of both of those systems is that people are disposable. The way that we solve problems is through punishment. You know, the defining characteristics of punishment are shame, humiliation, isolation, right? It's like, it's, it's not a creative. And also it's, you know, everything everything when punishment is our only like way of thinking about how to address problems then for every problem we're like punish remove this person get this person out of our community not like wait a minute here like what what would accountability look like if we lovingly and firmly held someone to embrace responsibility for their behavior and gave them the power to stand as an agent of repair? What would it look like for us to think about how to heal in ways where, you know, we made commitments to one another that through healthy conflict, we are going to fumble towards resolution. And those are like the real components of abolition to me that are hopeful, interesting. You know, I think they cultivate a sense of possibility. And I think, you know, the other part of it is that our relationship with police and prison, they have disempowered us as community members, right? They have allowed for us to 
be in relationship with each other where we kind of just like scapegoat problems. So like, I don't want to deal with this. This is hard. This is annoying. This is uncomfortable. And so, you know, we will call the police to, you know, punish people, get people out of our communities. And, and again, and when I, and I think it's important to talk about these systems also like in the framework of race, right? Where, you know, the history of police, I'm sure, but these systems were designed to protect white property and particularly white women have a tremendous legacy of using these systems to weaponize them in a way that is, you know, coded racism. And we, we, where we use language to mask that racism in the name of things like safety. And so, you know, depending on who it is that you are, I'm a small white lady. And so the way that I experience the police is really different than how you know, Black and and Indigenous communities experience the police. And so um, all of that informs who has had access to, quote unquote, safety historically. So as a person who is a white lady in America, I want to think about the ways in which I can, A, stand in the truth and the responsibility of how I have experienced these systems, how they're designed to, quote unquote, protect people like me. And moreover, like what it means to descend from people where like when these systems were created, they were created to protect white property. And when and at that time, that included other human beings. So, you know, when we think about who we are and like the legacy behind us and in front of us to me to stand as an abolitionist part of that is doing the inner work that i think is really important for me and for healing and for healing my imagination because i come from the people who created these systems and you know i think that they have been really harmful to us as well Yeah, definitely. And that just brings to mind another kind of buzzword that is in the canon of contemporary kind of activist based rhetoric around accountability. And it feels like you are talking about taking accountability to your ancestor, ancestral trauma, as somebody who presents as white, who identifies as white. And then we think about the term white and how that was invented to create othering. And so what are what are your thoughts around accountability? And is that what this this kind of thinking is for you? Yeah. So, again, I mean, I think it's really important that like the accountability that we know, right, account largely uh, the accountability that we're familiar with is like you're in trouble, you know, and that's that's not a really interesting framework for me. I think that's part of the framework that's gotten us here. Right. So. For me, when I'm thinking about accountability, I think about how do I want to be able to show up in relationship, right? How how do I want to be able to contribute to our movement, to the kind of world where there's a sense of like loving resilience? And so when I'm thinking about accountability, one of the big things that I think is really important, particularly for white people, is that we're doing the inner work. 
so that we can be in relationship in ways where there's a kind of resilience. You know, I don't want to sound like oh, just like a white person who came on here who read books about racism. Um, <laughs> You're not. Don't worry. You all know that. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's some like real bullshit in white culture. And one of those things is like, you know, there's no space for you to make mistakes, right? Um, we're like, we can be really black and white thinkers. And we um, have been socialized to believe that we embody like a kind of like goodness, right? Particularly white women, like we're inherently good. We're, we're here to like, we're here to help. Um, and so- <laughs> I love your white lady <laughs> accent. <laughs> You know, like, like, I just want to be like transparent here about like, yeah, like this is, this is very real. This is how we see ourselves this is the way that we have been socialized. Mm. And so when you've been socialized to like, see yourself as inherently good and, you know, here to like bring goodness to the world and like be a helping hand, you know, and you have this kind of very sort of a perspective on yourself where you want, like, you want to believe these positive things about yourself, right? And so there's a way in which you have to kind of like dodge and pivot to avoid having to face down the truth about the reality of the legacy that we come from. And so, you know, right now is a time where those of us who are in relationship with people of color, it's really important that we are doing the work that enables us to be in a real in relationship with black and brown and indigenous people where we can stand criticism, where we can be in a constructive critique around like, you know, this isn't working the way, the ways in which we have been in relationship, like this isn't working. This isn't healthy. This isn't healthy. And I really think that because of the pain that we carry from the intergenerational trauma we've inherited, from the historic trauma that we've inherited, from um, the kind of distance that we have attempted to place between like ourselves and the truth of our legacy, we can be really fragile when critiqued. And so a big part in my perspective of the work that we need to be doing right now is the inner work of really a, you know, standing in the truth of really who it is that we are and what we come from so that we have like a concrete sense of what are we trying to heal from? Where are we, where are we, where are we going? But also, so I want to be in a kind of relationship where like, you know, I want, the black and brown and indigenous people in my life to feel like that I'm going to respond with a kind of gratitude of like, if you're taking time to critique me or criticize work that I'm doing, that like that is loving, thoughtful care and that you have a belief that we can do this better. And historically that's been hard for us because what we hear is you're saying that I'm bad. You're saying that I'm a bad person. And, and we haven't been, haven't been good at being able to listen in ways that could be constructive. Well, it feels like defensiveness in general, like 
stops the conversation. And so I really appreciate you kind of unpacking that here because I think even beyond like interpersonal relationship between whiteness and um, various people of black, brown and indigenous descent, there is also like a real need for repair in our global arts community in general, and not even arts, but just in the way that we engage with each other and listen to each other and are able to take criticism on all ends of the spectrum. And so I understand you're coming from this lens of being a white woman, which there is a lot of repair that needs to happen and the fragility needs to kind of get looked at. But I think that these words are really wise for all parts of the global movement to move us forward as a human species, that we can look at our messiness and the way we're causing harm and lateral violence on each other and heal from that. So I really appreciate that, kind of unpacking that from your perspective. And what are some ways that you like combat the, or maybe combat's not the right word, but maybe deescalate like those walls and that defensiveness, you know, like the, those are some real skills, you know, and like, I appreciate it coming from your lens as a white woman. And I hope that you just know that that's a really important perspective to, for everybody to understand, because we don't really care or think about that because it's yeah. had so much space for so long. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I mean, it's funny because you're like, yeah, like defensiveness stops the conversation. I'm like, yeah, also like white people been moderating the conversation. So, <laughs> you know, so but there's that. Um, but I, I mean, I think that for me, a sense of humor is really helpful. I also just want to say, I mean, I think it's also important for me to say that I don't really know why, but I can say that, you know, I have had many relationships with black and brown and indigenous people. And, you know, like my friends have just been so generous. Um, and I have many relationships with people who, you know, where we just like had some real laughs about, yeah, about like, how fucked up whiteness is, but like there has to be space to talk about this in a non-academic way, like in a really like everyday kind of way where we trust that we see each other's like really like true spirit. Um, and so there's space to fumble, right? Like there is a messiness in this. And I think like for me, I, I want to try to be a person who feels like accessible, like a person who is like, I do not have all the answers. And I definitely am like a white lady that embodies all of the problematic things about whiteness. Like this is not a journey that's like, we've arrived at the destination. You know, like this is a ongoing thing where every new relationship, every new collaboration that I get into, I know that like this person is likely approaching this relationship with a very healthy level of like suspicion and distrust and they should <laughs> you know like, like you know so so I, I think that just like being really humble and and also you know developing a kind of comfort naming things as they come up like 
feels like there's like some racial dynamics that are informing the way you and I are interacting with one another and just developing a kind of comfort talking about things as they come up and, and noticing the way that my presence creates a kind of atmosphere in a space. You know, I think that like feeling comfortable, noticing that, naming that, talking about it as things arise, I think it really helps, you know, for a really long time. I I mean, I, okay. So I, I grew up in central Massachusetts where, you know, like I grew up in a town of 3000 people. I went to a high school where there were three black people and the way that we believed that we were not racist was by never talking about race. Um, And that is a thing that we do. And largely kind of, you know, like what I learned about like what racism was, it was like, as long as I wasn't like using the N word and burning crosses in people's front yard, like then I was good, (laughs) Um, you know? And so I think the more that I can understand the nuances of, the way that race informs situations that I'm in and the more that I can also just like be really understanding about how like colonized my mind is like just the way that I've been socialized to think and be open to recognizing like hmm, maybe that's informing the way I'm seeing this right now all of that I think is really important and really just like helpful yeah. Stand, standing in like the clumsiness, I think is really helpful. Yeah. And how did you get to that point? So your background is growing up in a really rural part of America, it sounds like, um, and kind of ignoring a lot of issues that you just felt like weren't a part of you or didn't mm-hmm. have to be if you didn't mention them. But how did you get to this point where you're like really radically active in like demythifying <laughs> this uh, this problem of whiteness ignoring itself yeah so i grew up in central massachusetts in an area that you know was rural but you know that we're also like kind of near a small city and i grew up in a place where people were like pumped to be like descendants of the mayflower <laughs> I grew up in a place where like you know like paul revere was our guy you know like we were like yeah like Boston Tea Party, fuck the British, you know? Um, But I also went to a high school, like I went to a high school called like Tahanto Regional High School. The high school that my mom went to was Algonquin Regional High School. But, you know, we were perched on the Wachusett Reservoir. And it's so interesting because I can tell you like what wasn't part of our curriculum. You know, I grew up right beside Nipmuc Nation. In my mind, I was like, oh, Nipmuc was the high school who like we always like, played in soccer. You know, it's so I grew up in an environment also where colonization was um, like we went to old Sturbridge Village for field trips. And it was like colonization was about it, like, oh, this is like cool. We're going to like churn butter and like learn how the blacksmith made horseshoes. OK, this was like my relationship with history. <laughs> Oh, it's so and, gentle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, but but simultaneously, okay. So, but I have to say though, simultaneously, you know, my mom's side of the family, I come from eleven generations of English colonizers, and 
it was really clear to me that, that my mom's side of the family is like, oh, there's rigidity here. Oh, like there's a sense of stuckness here. Belief systems around like what we should be doing that's largely um, shaped by a belief that our value is equitable to our work ethic. That was really clear in terms of like values and culture that I internalized. My dad's side of the family, I come from Polish and Italian immigrants. And so, you know, the two kind of like dueling narratives that I internalized around like who I was, why I was there, why I had the things that I had. It was like one narrative about like, uh, you know, salt of the earth work culture and another narrative about like your people came here as poor immigrants who like came the right way in air quotes right? And worked so that we have the things that we have, right? There was no conversation about race or about colonization. And within that family construct, there was also like some really serious suffering. You know, there's some addiction in my family, there's mental illness in my family. And so while I too internalized a belief around like that, like, we are tough, hardworking people, you know, and my mom's side of the family are all farmers. I also was real clear on like, something's not working. We are not well in a a lot of ways. Like there is a kind of craving for numbness. So I was really clear on that. And art was so just like a place of salvation. It was like, you know, always art was just like a good thing a place I could go um it just felt like true and right so you know as I kind of grew up and started thinking more like what am I like gonna do with art hat like what's what what is my purpose here what's my role here I always really knew that I wasn't going to be the kind of artist that was just like making precious things because I believe so deeply that art was part of like what kept me well. I was really, and, and I had a kind of, I also had begun to begin to develop a really cynical perspective on the U S system of care, particularly mental health care. Right. So I first started like right after college, actually, I started painting murals inside Worcester State Hospital with the people who were there, which is like Worcester State Hospital is one of the very first state run psych facilities in the country. And I really started kind of exploring like, what's the role of the institution? At what point are people like crazy in a way that we remove them from the community, right? Like I was just kind of like exploring and grappling with this like, what's my purpose? Like, how was art able to kind of like keep me well? What's the role of institutions in our larger society, right? So as I spent more time in mental institutions, you know, I started really noticing things, right? Like, wow, it's kind of interesting that supposedly we said that these people are like really vulnerable, but the environment of psych facilities, it's like no natural light, long straight hallways, no natural materials. You know, there were, th- there were things about like connection that I was like, ah, this doesn't make sense. 
And then, you know, you start spending time inside psych facilities and you, and you learn right really quickly that the psych system in the U.S. is directly connected to the prison system. And actually the largest psych facility in the U.S. is L.A. downtown jail, right? That, that the places where there's the most people suffering from mental illness in America are prisons, and you can argue that like you can't go to prison and not suffer or suffer from mental illness. But so I, I made that connection really quickly and then started really kind of unpacking the role of prisons in in the U.S., how and why prisons were developed. And, you know, and it like kind of like really quickly went from there, because as soon as you start unraveling the role of race in American prisons, you're like, oh, and and. And this was like the part of my people, right? And so my my questions started being answered quickly about, you know, what's my role in all of this? What could be the role of the artist? What does it look like for an artist to be an agent of supporting people in successful reintegration after institutionalization? So once I started really sinking my teeth and my creative practice into what becomes possible when artists are working um, inside institutions, uh, what becomes possible when I start really thinking about myself and, you know, the legacy that I represent in this context, then I can start answering myself questions about like, how I want collaboration to look, how I could play with power dynamics within portraiture and within community collaboration. Also just, you know, questions around, you know, I taught at San Quentin for four years and my experience teaching inside San Quentin was an opportunity for me to really think about the role in which white women have played in sculpting narratives about who is safe and who is unsafe and who deserves to be in communities and who doesn't deserve to be in communities. And that makes me think about what you've been talking about when we began this conversation around performing statistics and you're a co-director of that work and it's a project supporting youth organizers. Um, to close youth prisons, right? To like abolish youth prisons across the country. So how did how did you make that leap from unraveling this large thread to actually focusing it in to a program that could support abolition? Right. Yeah. So I think like many of us, right, um, who've had who kind of like been in movement work for a really long time. You know, the the first big part of my work, I was really focused on all that was wrong and focused on really understanding the facets of the police and prison and policing and race, right? And probably five or six years ago, I really made a commitment that to moving towards a place of of being a part of mapping what's required, of practicing the ways in which I believed I wanted to see the world pivot. And so I also really believe that, you know, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, that one of the consequences of prison has been the way in which it's harmed our imagination. 
Um, and, you know, when I think about also kind of like our collective spiritual pain, a big part of disconnection, right, is about our sense of self and our sense of belonging. And, you know, I, I think Julia Cameron does a lot of really interesting writing about like, like the we are creations, we're part of a world where, you know, uh, we're all here to support one another. There's a kind of reciprocity, right? Which is a very indigenous structure of thinking. And that like, we're members of the natural world. And in colonization, we've made some real like big mistakes about how we see ourselves in that natural world, right? I live in California and there's some you know, it's really interesting when you read like conservationalist writing about like the untouched like landscape of California. And I'm like, no, that was like a very touched, loved on landscape of California by indigenous people. But we're like, oh, it was like like the wild, untouched nature. Um, and that is not what was happening, right? But 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 we only see ourselves as agents of destruction, as colonizers, right? It's like there's nature. Um, and and this is also this is part of consequence of Christianity and like othering ourselves from the natural world. Right. And so I think that uh, it's really important when we think about healing our creativity, that we refine a sense of like, what are our wells of imagination? How do we see ourselves as stewards within the natural world? Like how I have, I have many, many succulents and we're like in a long, deep collaboration where, you know, like they bring me great joy and inspiration. And like, I help them like stretch out and make sure that they're kind of like around other succulents they like, like hanging out with. But like, that's a real pivot in, in thinking away from a colonized sense of, you know, we're here to control things. Like I always like joke around with my dad, my dad, my dad currently is at war with his lawn. He's very upset that his lawn isn't like complete monoculture. Um, but like <laughs> for my dad, he thinks that like his relationship with the lawn is that it is to be tidy and it is to all be the same. You know, that's, this is, this is part of like what I come from. Um, <laughs> yeah. Lawns are very colonial constructs. <laughs> yes. Big time. Big time. Yeah. Um, my dad's lawn is a whole other conversation, but yeah, so, uh, back to performing statistics though and imagination. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I love is thinking about how to create collaborative experiences where the work is led by questions about like, what might be possible, how things could be like, what would it feel like, you know, and leading in that kind of way so that, you know, young people who are directly impacted by incarceration, A, they're the most appropriate people and they're the experts who have the information that we need, the experiences that we need as we build towards a world where all young people can be free. So what does it look like to engage them in creative activity where and visioning sessions where we can sit down and together and be like, all right, let's think about 60 years from now. You guys are sitting on your front porch, you know, running your fingers through your gray hair and you are watching kids play in your neighborhood. And not only do these kids know nothing of incarceration, their parents know nothing of incarceration. Describe that kind of freedom. And I think this work is really important right now because I think we're really in the place of abolition where 
you know, we saw in 2020 people being like, defund the police, what? Abolish the police, what? And it's so important that like right behind that conversation needs to be the conversation of like, yo, look at the world that these young people who've experienced these systems are building. Yo, look what could be possible for your grandkids if they were raised by people who'd never been incarcerated. Imagine what it would be like if black and brown indigenous people could send their children off into the world and never have like the the like jumping jack anxiety of like my kid not might not be safe in public. Imagine what it would be like if we were committed to loving like our rivers, our um, oceans in ways that like, you know, two generations from now, six generations from now, seven generations from now could trust there is gonna be clean air and water. And so I'm just really interested in the ways in which art and relationship building and storytelling can create a kind of vision so that we can begin to really like get people on board with like what we're talking about when we're saying dive when we're saying divest from the police we're saying invest in community solutions we're saying move money that currently is going towards police overtime and let's invest that money in green jobs for young people so that they have power over transforming their communities into spaces where we can roll our eyes at what a dumb idea prison is. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I love the breakdown of moving a conversation to becoming more generative. And I think that like that's the kind of work that I like to focus on and do. And it's not always popular, but I think that the more people like crest that wave of anger, right. like what's next? And I love that that's the work that this seems, that's what this is doing, that's that work, right? Yeah, and I think strategically also, it's really important if if we want to be the people who are mapping what's next, because there, there's gonna be a map of what's next. And if we're not like ready with those blueprints, then someone else is gonna be. So, you know, and, and also people are scared. And I think that when people can see models of like, oh, when you say restorative justice, that's what you mean. Oh, when you say transformative justice, that's what you mean. Oh, when you say we're not going to suspend or expel kids from school anymore, that's what it could look like. You know, I think it's, really important that there's yeah concrete models of what we're talking about yeah and i like how you say we and it's not in a binary around race or class it's like everybody who is capable can show up and do this work and i think that's really important to name too about and on your website it reads i kind of like looked at this earlier and just wanted to ask you about it it reads um on your website community-based work demands consent feedback input sharing generosity patience and trust so how have you learned this process and what are some ways that we can be better community with each other in real time and not exhaust people who have been harmed through whiteness and colonization? Yeah, so my work happens in a lot of different containers, right? There's a lot, there's a big part of my work where I'm 
in collaboration with youth of color who directly experience the prison system. There's a big part of my work where I'm in a collaborative process with people and we're painting their portrait. And I'm really thinking with them about exactly what they want from the portrait, how they can be part of making decisions throughout that process. There's also been a big part of my work that's been about making space to be in relationship with other white people on behalf of healing, on behalf of unpacking what's going on inside of ourselves and on behalf of kind of like an ongoing state of becoming so that in our respective work in these other places, we can show up in ways where we're not causing harm, where we can be open to feedback and critique and learning. And I also want to say that, you know, another big part of my healing has been somatic work through Chip Thomas. I, and what I, is somatic work? Can you break that down? Yeah. So somatic work is uh, a kind of there is, you know, it's a, it's a therapeutic method of unpacking what's going on in our bodies, right? One of the features of whiteness is that we live in our heads. And also I would argue that one of the things that makes us so dangerous is that there's a lot happening in our bodies and we don't know how to quiet ourselves, right? So, you know, uh, white anxiousness, white fear that has nothing to do with the people around us from that place of anxiousness and fear, we respond to situations in ways that make the people around us unsafe. And it has nothing to do with our actual safety. It has to do with like compounding of like many, many years of the narratives that we've internalized, but also that like we have been oppressors and that stuff adds up in our bodies. And we've tried to live in a way that is compartmentalized and we're like stuffing it in numb, right? And that stuff like pops up in ways that's really dangerous. So when we see like the white lady going crazy, calling the police, okay, and she's saying all this fucked up shit on the phone and like going crazy, what's actually happening is that this person is completely out of control in their body. And for whatever reason, the situation that this person is in, she's been triggered. And instead of being like, oh, this isn't about them, this is about me. Because of the way that we have internalized our level of entitlement regarding fear, and we have built systems that affirm that fear. And so a big part of being white is that we've internalized beliefs that you should always feel comfortable, you should always feel safe. And it's not that that's not true. We should feel comfortable and safe, but you know what? Everyone else should too. <laughs> <laughs> um, Good point. <laughs> and, and, and the s systems that are currently in place have been built and so that like we've been able to weaponize them against people who we identify as having made us uncomfortable and safe, but they haven't made us uncomfortable and safe. They have triggered something that's going on inside of our bodies. And, you know, so like when we see police officers, like think about how the law is written, right? When we see police officers on the stand and they're justifying having killed someone, 
the police are able to say like, oh, well, like I was scared for my life and, and being like being scared actually has nothing to do with if you're actually in danger. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so somatics has been a way to unpack what's what what's what's in my body the trauma that i have inherited the you know historical trauma that my ancestors have been part of as a result of being oppressors of people and land the residual trauma of you know like descending from women who weren't able to live fully expressed lives so through meditation, through breath work, through, um, you know, doing that in circle with other people, I've been able to really unpack a lot of the stuff that's a lot of the stories that my body carries that were things that like, you know, I don't know, when I was younger, it'd be like, you're walking on the street by yourself. You walk in front of a group of, of, of like a group of black teenagers I start thinking fucked up things, feeling my blood pressure go up, right? That's not about them. That's about me. So somatics has been really helpful at unpacking that. And particularly uh, through Chip Thomas, I I met Dr. Ruby Gibson, who wrote the book, My Body, My Earth, and she created a method called somatic archaeology, which is particularly good at helping people heal from historic and intergenerational trauma. And in 2019, she invited to be me to be part of a group that did a year-long masterclass intensive learning the method of somatic archaeology. And so, you know, with a group of 27, lar- mostly indigenous women, I was able to learn this method, but also like be in community with them. And, you know, it's a, a really, really impactful experience to be in supportive relationship with indigenous women from all over the country while they're unpacking the ways in which historical trauma has compounded in their bodies. And I'm compounding the ways in which having descended from colonization and being the colonizer has compounded in my body. So that was really huge. Also, you know, there's an organization here in Oakland called Generative Somatics. They do a lot of good work with white organizers. Um, the book, My Grandmother's Hands, is also amazing. And Reswa Menikim has just put out a workbook, like a year-long workbook that people can do in community. And he has it divided up by like, there's one workbook for people of what he calls body of culture, which is basically like if you're not a white person. Um, and then there's another workbook for cops and white people. And um, Amazing. So, yeah. So I also have been able to be in community with a, a, a great group of other white people here in Oakland who um, are doing this work. And so, you know, we've been working on that together. That's beautiful to be in community with other people who come from that place of trauma, but through the enactor of trauma and to 
spend your life addressing that, you know, um, I think that's really beautiful. And thank you for answering the question in that way with like real tangible in body experiencing of healing, because that will affect the, um, the next generation, you know, and I think although you're in a lot of relationship with black, brown and indigenous people, you will impact white people the most because there aren't a lot of people who are not ashamed to speak up about their healing process, about the colonization that runs through their bloodlines and um, the harm caused through their history. A lot of people just want to be dismissive about it. So I really appreciate you being super vulnerable and like open and um, joyful in the complexity of it, you know, like finding a way through without demonizing yourself and shutting off because so often I think that's what happens when whiteness gets quote unquote woke. There's like, there's like a demonizing and a self-hatred that happens and like we don't shift out of that cycle of harm. It just gets like buried deeper. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's really real in that kind of self-loathing is something that I think that part one of the contours of whiteness has been a way in which we know that something's wrong but we don't really know what it is and we don't really know how to heal from it and like you said like then there can be kind of like shifts and particularly like in activist spaces right we see a lot of white people who feel like that what our role it, like if right it, it remains in this binary it's like you're either a good per white person or you're a bad white person and the bad white people are the white people who want to deny that we come from an oppressive history and the good white people are the ones who are going to stand in self-loathing like that we could never heal towards being um accountable in a way that's like loving or that like we have contribution right um I think it's a low bar for us right it's like kind of like like when you hear about like trauma informed blah 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 I'm like and what that actually means is like we're gonna do this work in a way that just like doesn't cause harm it's like okay I don't want to cause harm but also like I want to be way better than that I want to like be productive. I want to be constructive. I want to like have big dreams with each other to like do things that we've like never seen yet. So, you know, I, I hope that through the somatic work and the unpacking that collectively, you know, the white body has the potential to heal in ways that we can refine like a loving patience for ourselves. And also, you know, I think that it is from pain that our violence comes. And I think that's another thing that like, I just wish we could use as a stepping stone towards healing. It is not from self-hatred that like goodness and capacity to love and capacity to like be in imaginative healing relationships. Like that doesn't come from self-loathing it comes from self-respect it comes from self-love it comes from like a trust that we can evolve towards something that's better than what we have right now or better than we've ever seen before so um yeah i 
I, I hope we can get there. Yeah, I definitely think that even what you were talking about in your work with the performing statistics about that future dreaming, like futurism is something that exists in our household really prevalently because Chinupa is my partner and it's a big part of his practice um, and healing and repair through indigenous like futurism and um, speculative fiction. But I do think that as soon as you can have a healthy enough imagination to imagine yourself beyond this point, you can start moving towards that. And I love that because it feels like that's what you're doing in all of the different branches of your work, even though they have such different ways of participating and engaging with the world. And like, as a kind of a final thing I'd like to talk about, which could fall within this thread is your portraiture. And when you were talking about it briefly, in this conversation, you were saying how you collaborate with those being involved in having their portrait done by you. And so what what is that part of your practice? I mean, I know you've had your work like as um, signposts for like the Women's March and like different big global and national projects. So, so what is that part and how does that tie into maybe this future dreaming of seeing ourselves in a new way? Yeah, well, you know, like we know that there's been a long history of white artists um, painting from the white gaze, <laughs> right? So like, let's just start here. Um, and, you know, like in some ways it's like, in some ways we can look at our history as like, uh, okay, well, this is how we've been doing it. What would it look like to do it differently? And so for me, portraiture is a place to be like, okay, what does it look like to play with power? What does it look like to play with how people want to see themselves versus how people have historically been represented. So when I work with people on portraits, before we do anything, we talk about like, how do you want to be in your portrait? What feels important about like your spirit that you want to be represented in this portrait? What's like the feeling of this portrait? And I think it's also with young people, like whose power has been systemically taken away, with people who the narrative of their story has been told by others, changing this process around can be really powerful. But also I wanna be like really honest in that like, I do this work is really good for me. You know, I do this work and like playing, playing with this kind of power dynamic. It's not like for charity. It's for like, I'm able to be in a different kind of relationship with people. You know, like a lot of the people who I first meet them because like, for whatever reason, I'm like matched up with them to like do their portrait. They become friends. We dream, we collaborate on other stuff moving forward. So, you know, I come to this work because it's really good for me and I love it. And it brings amazing people into my life. So through the portrait process, um, yes, we talk a bunch and then we take a whole bunch of pictures. Uh, and then I work with them to think about like which pictures embody the story that you want to tell. And <clears throat> like I told you before, when I was a young person, art was like, it was medicine. It kept me happy, kept me well, you know, it was a place that I could go. So when I'm working 
particularly with young people and even with like people in community, I also want them to feel the magic of art. I want them to feel like they had a hand in the thing to be like, oh my God, it's like so fun to have an idea and then see it exist in the world. Like I've been doing this a really long time and the magic is still so there for me. And so I want to share that in the process. And um, I think stencil is a really great process for community work just because people can trust that like how they look in a picture that they feel good about is generally how they're going to look in a portrait. Also, before I paint anything, I tell people I am completely down to like do, do this over. So if I make a thing and you don't feel really good about it, like no questions asked, like we're going to start fresh. Is there a thing we need, I need to fix, you know? I'm also, I always, I'm really open to that so that it matters to me that when people trust me to make their portrait, you know, I take it really seriously that someone's like, yeah, I'm going to trust you that like, you're going to make an image of me and that image is going to go in the world because usually the portraits that I, I don't usually make portraits for like, oh, hey, like I want to give my mom a portrait like for her birthday. Usually when I get <laughs> portraits, it's like a lot of people are going to see this thing. So it matters to me that the people who are represented, that they feel like, yeah, like that is me and I feel good about it. Yeah, so always the person, they choose the picture that we use and then they see it first before anyone um, a lot of times with stencils, I can make more than one. So if I'm painting them, the person always gets one. Yeah, that's how I think about portraiture and the portraiture process. And I think that it's like a real opportunity to have conversations about counter narrative and have conversations about, you know, who gets to tell their story and who gets to rep who gets to be represented in the way that they see themselves. Um, and, and I just think that that's really important. And I think that as a white artist who is making portraiture of many black and brown and indigenous people, that I approach that process as an opportunity to be in relationship in a way that is different than the way in which white artists before me have been in relationship with black and brown and indigenous people who they were representing in their artwork. And also as a woman, it's interesting because it's a counter narrative to the primarily like cis hetero white male portraiture gaze that is in the art canon of America, you know? So I, I often feel like the binary of like, the woman's story or the femme identifying person's story and um, the whiteness or the person of color like it's like you have to pick what you're pushing forward and when sometimes in the way our culture is so binary so i just want to name that i think there's something really beautiful about a woman supporting to uplift these stories and um and how do how do you navigate being somebody who identifies as a woman, not a white woman, but just a woman in the world, in patriarchy, in the patriarchal aspect of colonization and where we find ourselves in capitalism? <laughs> Small question. <laughs> question. Um, 
Well, first of all, I think that it's really for me, I think that like the capitalism question is something that's been like really frontal to my identity because it's so linked to the colonization question and where, you know, I was raised by workaholics. I was raised by farmers. Um, I grew up in central Massachusetts where like me and my friends from there always joke around. We're like the best thing anyone could ever say about you at your funeral was that you worked till the day you died. <laughs> um, and, and so there's something really big for me about seeing really clearly where I have opportunity to resist that my value is proportional to my capacity to produce normative labor. And, you know, I've just learned so much from, you know, the work of sins and valid and disability justice around like really turning on our heads, the ways in which capitalism has just done a really good job at robbing us of our humanity and our, and, and, you know, like we were talking about this before of like, you know, within colonization, we are a force of dominance. We are a force of pursuit as individuals. We are a force of pursuing a kind of capital where we measure ourselves based on the pursuit of wealth, right? Versus a indigenous perspective on that, like, you are all your relations. You, you are a summation of the relationship that you have with the beings in the world, humans and the natural world. And in that, there's a kind of purpose that is deeply tied to your commitment to caring for the beings in your life, right? Those of us who descend from colonizers it's not like we weren't indigenous once we were, it was just a long ass time ago. And we've lost that sense of purpose. We've lost that kind of belonging in the natural world and a kind of belonging or purpose that's tied to relationship. And so when I think about like, how do I stand in my power as a woman resisting patriarchy, resisting capitalism? It comes from how I make decisions about how I want to stand in relationship and resist those spaces where like I am reduced to my value strictly within the values of capitalism. Right. So slowing down is really important. Um, noting when I'm inventing a sense of urgency is really important. Also just trying to be in relationship with my family around how this stuff informs the way that we relate to one another. Um, recognizing the way work has been a tool for numbness, a tool like how busyness gets in the way of us being able to really understand what's happening. And, and also 
the ways in which busyness and urgency, it, it creates a kind of violence in the spaces where we are because when we are busy, when we are working in the ways that we have been socialized to work, we are numb. And that numbness makes space for us to justify the dehumanization of the those around us. Um, and it also makes space for us to justify the exploitation of land. So, you know, those things are really all connected for me. Wow. I just really appreciate that answer and how it's super um, well-rounded, <laughs> how everything... <laughs> how you've really done the work to think about the interconnectivity of all these aspects of repair, you know, through your yeah. work, through your life, through your body, through your spirit. And I, and I mean, I think I also like, I don't want to be like, oh yeah, like things are going great. Like, it, I mean, it is messy and it is fumbling. Like mm -hmm. my family is like in battle right now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so like, it's not, it's not like, and everything's great all the time. Like, no, like this is a work in progress. Like I always talk about this in abolition too, when people are like, well, like, you know, what do we do? Like uh, there's, there's a domestic dispute going on next door and I think there's a gun in the house. Do I not call the police? And, you know, I feel like we're really in a time where I talk about this all the time. There's like, there's two icebergs or like, there's the world that we're building towards. Right. And there's like right now, and we're like in fucking triage and we are the generation that is straddling these two things. And I really hope that like, as, as, as my life moves on, it's like, I can lean more towards like the next iceberg, but like, but we are in the shit storm right now. And, and then the icebergs are melting too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, I, I just want to be like in the, the transparency around that, like, this isn't smooth sailing, you know, it is fumbling and dark humor is really important. Yeah, there's, there's definitely healing and in, in finding humor and joy throughout all the hard work that it doesn't minimize the work when you have joy in your heart as you move through the messiness. Um, and speaking of, what can you offer to maybe other artists or people of a generation below you, or even people who are in a position of privilege above you in curatorial or um, directorial um, positions? Any insight or reflection that you feel like could be an offering to help in healing? I mean, I think that's the thing that I want to say the most is that it's worth it. You know, engaging in the messiness, engaging in the healing, standing in the truth of the darkness of the violence that we come from, we were, it's worth it. And um, I, I come from a legacy where there was a lot of like, you should do this. And I don't want to make a recommendation from a place of like, this is what you should be doing. Um, I want to make a recommendation of, from a place of that, like, when we walk towards the deepest, numbest pain that we've been trying to avoid, we walk closer to the other side where there's possibility and where there's light and where we relieve the stuckness that is the constriction. While, you know, like, a lot of being a white lady is white knuckling the belief that, like, 
we're good, right? Um, and like while the world is, you know, exploding in front of you. Um, so, but I have found that the more that I stand just in my truth, the more I'm able to be in relationship and the more I have access to my imagination and creativity in a way that is tremendously healing and fulfilling. And so I, you know, invite people into that work. Um, Yes, because I think it's super fucking important that we end the kind of genocide that we perpetuate by erasure of denying that in every single frame where there was slavery in every single frame where there was and continues to be like the harm of indigenous people that like that's not black history that's not indigenous history like that is our history too we were in the we we are and continue to be in those frames and so like I think it's really really important that we face those realities and stand in those truths but also doing this work makes space for us to experience a kind of self-love and inner peace that I think our ancestors haven't had in many, many generations. Mm, Yeah, that's a beautiful reflection and some really good insight to think about. So thank you so much for sharing. And just this conversation in general has been such a joy. And like, I just really appreciate the way you're thinking about things and the way that you are stepping up to the challenge of your white womanhood. (laughs) Thank you, Ginger. It means the world to me that, you know, you thought it was worth talking to me Uh, (laughs) because for all of the people who, yeah, have podcasts like yours, like, I don't know, I'm not sure I'd be inviting the white ladies to chat. <laughs> that's, I think that's the most important thing. Like, and I think that's why Broken Boxes is because from its inception, uh, one of our mutual friends, Jesse Hazlip, was like the third person I had on this show, you know, like I've always wanted to have the intersection of narrative so that people who come into this space just thinking it's one thing can hear an alternative perspective of people thinking about the same healing from a different lens. And that is so critical in something that I really value in repair is like stopping the siloing of our narratives. Because like you said, we all are in each other's frames, you know, and we need to, we need to repair and we can't just like, practice that kind of like prison industrial complex on each other like we can't throw each other away or we will we'll just keep banging our heads against the same brick wall yeah no i mean it's it's really it's really true and um and this is and i will say you know it's like and i appreciate this like this is one of the spaces where i come to hear what other people who are thinking about these things are thinking and feeling and i appreciate it so much yeah oh thanks Kate. Woo. Absolutely. thank you 